Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Don't let this music throw you off. We're working on new intros and we need your feedback. But this is particular for our topic today. This program features hand clapping, foot stomping, down south gospel music. Right now we're going to have Mary Carter and her sidekick, Gail Stoddard. They reside right here in Vancouver, attend Amazing Grace Baptist Church. If you see them out and about, tell them they need to sing this song in their church sometimes. <laughs> and it's simply entitled this song, as they're going to sing for you, is The Devil's in the Phone Booth Dialing 911. Come on, be ladies and bless these people. Now, we used to sing us in the Pentecostal church too, y'all. Don't make no mistakes. Well, the devil's in the phone booth. Sing it, ladies. Dialing 911. Uh oh. Well, the church is on their knees and they're loading up the spiritual gun. Bang, bang. Well, the devil thought he had us, but the tables are turned. And now he's on the run. The Woo! Phone booth, phone booth. Dialing 911. We could keep going for y'all today, but we thought we'd intro with that because we're going to talk about some spiritual substance. And hopefully, for y'all, the devil's in the phone booth dialing 911. Well, I guess welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Adam. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl. And uh, today we're going to be answering a question that's been um, asked by a few different people. And that is if we have all these positive things to say about the Roman Catholic Church, well, why aren't we ourselves Roman Catholic? Yeah, we get, um, we get quite a number of, of uh, emails or comments about Roman Catholicism and why, why, hey, why aren't you guys just Roman Catholic? And then my, my good Roman Catholic friends are always saying, why don't you just become a Roman Catholic? Uh, we did that episode on the plenitude of power, which was looking at some of the, the historical beliefs about the papacy. And uh, we did have one one guy email me who felt that we had mischaracterized the teaching of the papacy uh, because he he's opted to become a Roman Catholic and and may the Lord bless you, brother, as you as you obey the Holy Spirit. Um, but. One, I, I think we did a pretty good historical treatment with some humor in it, which is kind of opening the podcast today the way that we did with a little bit of fun humor, not poking in the eye any Baptist or someone who loves that song, The Devil's in the Phone Booth, uh, but to kind of put a little humor in it because we talk about some pretty substantial stuff and, and humor is a nice, nice thing. Um, so if you haven't listened to the plenitude of power and our glorious He-Man reference there, I'd recommend that you you check that out. It's a good it's a good topic, a good episode. <laughs> but we get asked that, you know, why aren't you Roman Catholic? So it, it seemed fitting that we would discuss Roman Catholicism as it is today, because the Roman Catholicism today is not the Roman Catholicism even before Vatican II, let alone at the Council of Trent. Um, 
or go back a thousand years ago. It's not the same. And obviously, large portions of it are the same. I don't mean that it's a different church altogether. I don't mean that at all. But I thought it'd be, it'd be fitting if we could talk about some of the distinctions between Roman Catholic and Catholic and how we are Anglicans who count ourselves, our, our self-understanding is in accordance with the canons of 1604, that we are part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And in that canon, it says, if anyone says that the Church of England, in this case, now the Anglican Communion, isn't part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, they are ipso facto excommunicate from the church. So I thought it'd be fitting to, to kick that around a little bit today for our listeners. So we hope you don't get too bored by this. But um, Alex, how was Greece? Greece was very nice. Was Greece better than Istanbul? Personally, I liked Istanbul a whole lot better than Greece. Why isn't it Constantinople, Alex? Because the Muslims came over. Uh, well, in, it was about 1930 when uh, the uh, Turkish state took over. And they said, we don't want to have any uh, Christian ties anymore to uh, Constantinople because it was a Christian nation at that point. What was it like when you went into the building that used to be the Hagia Sophia? I felt a few different uh, feelings. When I walked in, I mean, this place was crowded. I mean, this place, Disney World has nothing on that, the crowds. I mean, okay. this, it was crowded there. So we waited in, as they say, we waited in queue uh, <laughs> for about an hour and a half. It was a okay. huge long line way down the road. So, you know, we're sitting in line, whatever. We walk through the doors, and the first thing I notice is just the plain bare walls of the Hagia Sophia. Just the plain bare walls. White walls. White, wall, white walls, yes. Okay. And it just struck me, like, how old this building was. Because you could tell it was old and weathered. And it just it struck me the, what had happened in this place. Because it didn't used to be white walls. No. Or bare walls. Right. Yeah. So you, we go through there and we have a tour guide with us and he's telling us the history and all this stuff. And, you know, I didn't let him know that I was an expert on it already. So <laughs> you're a master in divinity. Right. right. So right. I was, right. I was listening to him and it was, uh, so it's obviously if you, if you guys don't know, the Hagia Sophia started off as a Christian, uh, uh, what's the word? Temple church. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Christian church. Right. Absolutely. Right. And, um, on the, I, I took several pictures and, uh, what, as, what does Hagia Sophia mean? Uh, it means, uh, Holy wisdom, Holy wisdom, the church of Holy wisdom, right. In Constantinople, the center yeah. of Byzantine Christianity and of Christianity itself. I mean, it, it was much larger than anything in Rome and in the West and the Christian world and was the center of Christianity in a true way for about a thousand years. Right. Yeah. So it was about the 1400s whenever it became a mosque again. Right, when the, when the, 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 um, the Muslims took right. Constantinople. Right? But before that, there was, uh, there was no sign of Christianity in there anymore. Very little. Um, but as you look up into the dome, it was the highest dome at that point ever built, ever, anywhere. And at the top, it had the very first icon of Christ, uh, the pan. Hey, so how, do you, how do you say it? Panto crater? The Panto crater. Yeah. yeah. It looks so, like Panto crater. Yes. Yeah. 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 I don't, yeah. you know. You're good. So, and that was there. That was the face of Jesus. Uh, the face of Jesus looking down into, the, into, into his church. And of course, now it has a, um, some verse from the Quran. I couldn't read it because it was in not English. So, but they had uh, four of uh, the seraphim still there that the, that the Christians drew. There were seraphim holding up the dome 
and holding up the face of Christ as he's looking down. So I just felt that it was just, it was disappointing. I, I, I felt all, I felt in awe of the building right. because I knew what was there. And, you know, I, I honestly had the urge, man, I just want to preach Jesus in here. I had that urge, you know, but I didn't really want to go to Turkish jail. I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to deal with all that. But yeah. like truly something in my spirit rose up and said, like, what was here? Yeah. And, and it just, so the, the part of me was sad. Okay. It's not there anymore. It's, it's a mosque. And now it's, I mean, if, if I was in charge of the world, there would be no visitors allowed there because of the fact, if you're going to call it a mosque or you can call it whatever you're going to call it, there's thousands of people walking around, roaming around. The only respectful thing they did is they make you take your shoes off. Gotcha. So we couldn't walk around the, the carpet with shoes. But other than that, it was just, you know, just a, you know, just another ordinary tourist trap. It seemed like. A few years ago, I know there was a, it was a university that did a replica of what the, the choral, the chanting uh, sound would have been like in the Hagia Sophia. Yeah. They did something with the acoustics because they measured the acoustics in that room and then they could digitally translate it to the choir that they had singing somewhere. Right. So you got a feeling for what it would have been like. And it, it was incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. I ask because... One, it was a fun trip, and I'm sure people would want to know more about it, and they can contact you privately. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, but you, you mentioned you, you were, you were um, uh, on the Bosphorus. I was. At some point. I was. Yeah. So the phrase that's used for people when they leave um, the Anglican Communion or Rome or some other you know, Christian body to become Eastern Orthodox is they're, you know, they're swimming the Bosphorus. Right. Yeah, they're crossing the Bosphorus. Because that's what's right outside Constantinople or Istanbul. Well, when people become Roman Catholic, they swim the Tiber. Right. They cross the Tiber. They go across the river in Rome to the Vatican. For a thousand years, Eastern Christianity and what was going on in Constantinople couldn't be rivaled. Now, you have other epicenters of Christian influence. In, in, in the world. I'm not diminishing any of that. But what was going on in Constantinople in many ways was, was pretty incredible. Right. right. So when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church, Rome makes the claim that it was founded by Jesus. Well, as Anglicans, we would say, yes. Yeah, we, there, that is historically the case, that because of the apostolic succession and specifically the chair of St. Peter, which is, which ended, I should say, in Rome, that's true. Right. Paul's martyred there. That's true. Roman Jews were at Pentecost in the book of Acts on the day of or at, at, in Jerusalem at Pentecost on the day on the day of Pentecost received the Spirit and we don't even know who started the church in Rome, but the church in Rome goes back to the first century. Constantinople didn't exist in the first century. It was a city that Constantine built over top of Byzantium. Byzantium, uh, the Byzantine Empire was that small town there, that, that port town, if you will. And church tradition says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was the apostle who was there. So the patriarch of Constantinople, and he's still around, and he's still the primus inter Paris, and we'll get into that in a moment, is the, the figurehead for the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, Patriarch Bartholomew right now. Uh, Pope Francis sent him some fragments of St. Peter's bones back in 2016, I believe. As an, as an ecumenical gesture. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, you're going to send fragments of Peter's bones, but they looked at it like this. Uh, 
there was fellowship between the two brothers, Peter and Andrew. Andrew being the, the throne, Andrew's chair in Constantinople. Peter's chair also extends to Antioch and Alexandria. So you get these ancient, ancient uh, patriarchates. But Rome, as much as there was a primus inter pares, a first, a first amongst equals, a primacy, if you will, a Roman primacy, or a kind of deference to the Bishop of Rome all through Christian history, We'll go up to we'll, we'll go to uh, to the Great Schism in 1054, 1056. We'll go to, we'll go to that that point right there, right, just about a thousand years ago, and we'll say the Roman bishop, the Pope of Rome, had respect, but he didn't have universal jurisdiction. Meaning, if he went into any of the churches in the East, like Constantinople, and said you have to do this, they could tell him no. And history is full of cases where they did, in fact, do that. Right. They said no. And, and most of the time, uh, like we've talked about the ecumenical councils, the seven ecumenical councils. None of those councils were called by the Bishop of Rome, nor did he attend any of them, even though he had his, his delegates, his legates that were there. Okay. And what makes them ecumenical is that when Rome hears about them, the Bishop of Rome, as the patriarch, the primary the chief leader of the church in the Western Empire, acknowledged that that decision, that council, was indeed correct. So we want to make sure that we're presenting a right historical picture that, one, rightly honors the Bishop of Rome, the papacy, but also preserves the dignity and the honor of the other major bishops and patriarch, patriarchs in Christian history. Okay. Now, the eastern half of the empire, of Roman Empire, many cities, a whole lot more cities there than there were in the east. And so Rome is one of the major cities. Now, you have others like Ambrose and Milan, and apparently, from what I understand, and I'm sure some historian can maybe either correct me or, or give us some more information here, but Ambrose's church was bigger than the church in Rome for a while. Uh, you can go there and you can still see the remains of it. You can see Ambrose, uh, his remains there. And then you had the church in Carthage, which was pretty substantial. And then you had Augustine, who was in Hippo. But by the time the, the essentially Muslim conquests began coming across northern Africa, Hippo's gone. Right. Carthage is gone. The North African church is not a juggernaut force. That, that's quickly not the case. Alexandria falls pretty quickly. But the... And Jerusalem will as well. But Constantinople holds out, and Rome hold out. So they become the two dominant seas in the church for a long time. And they're not at odds with each other. Occasionally they'll get into it over something, but they, they stay pretty much in lockstep with each other until that great schism when one patriarch excommunicates the other, meaning the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople the archbishop, the patriarchs, excommunicate one another. And we're not going to go into that whole history. But to say, when that happens, the center for Western Christianity becomes that much more Roman-oriented. So it al the Bishop of Rome already was the first amongst equals and already was the last source of appealing the, the last person you could appeal something to in the church in the West. It had been like that for hundreds of years. 
the Holy Roman Empire with Charlemagne and the way the Pope slides the crown on Charlemagne's head at his coronation in December uh, 800, the year 800, I think, something like that. Uh, Charlemagne didn't like it because he knew what the, he knew what the symbolism meant, is what the, was that the Bishop of Rome gave him his throne. He didn't like that. And Constantinople, the, the, the emperor, the, the Greek, the Byzantine emperor, who was still being called the Roman emperor, by the way, did not like there was somebody else in the West who was calling himself the Roman emperor, the Holy Roman emperor. So there's a whole lot of history here. And in that history, there's a whole lot of politics. We can't separate the church from the state. We can do it theoretically and we can do it on paper, but practically it's very difficult to do that in Christendom because they're so intertwined with each other. Okay. And obviously we could put so much more nuance in these points, but let's jump forward now to the Reformation. By the time uh, in England and, and across Western Europe, by the time you get to this point, Constantinople's fallen. There is no Eastern Christian Empire anymore. And so many of the monks and the theologians and the people who could get out of Constantinople and flee, they did. Some would go up into Russia, and this is where the Russian Orthodox Church starts to come from. I mean, it's got more roots to it, much older roots than that, and there's a whole thing about how it converts, you know, there's a lot to it. But the, the, the Third Rome shifts, because you had Rome, Constantinople, and Third Rome is Moscow. So you get this, this uh, migration of people into what we call Russia, and then you get a whole other migration up into places like Germany and England, more Germany than England. And it's these Eastern ideas that start to really fertilize some of the ideas from the, the uh, uh, we'll call them the pre-reformers, like Wycliffe, and Savonarola and, and uh, Huss and uh, some, of these, uh, some of these other leaders who, who don't challenge the church. They don't, it, like the church's existence, they don't challenge the ministry. They don't challenge the sacraments. They don't challenge the pope. They challenge the universal jurisdiction of the papacy. That's what they're challenging. They will press. The, they will press and try to try to fill out more theological definition on certain points. But what they what they start to really press home to everybody is that the bishop of Rome is the bishop of Rome, not the bishop of the world. This is a, this is a big deal, right. and Anglicans didn't. We didn't make it up. This is how the church had lived, and so when you get to the time of the Reformation. There'd always been a back and forth between the English monarchs and the papacy. I mean, sometimes you read the different historical accounts, and sometimes you're like, yeah, the king was right. Other times you're like, yeah, the pope was right. And they go back and forth on this for a long time. You get to Henry VIII's reign, and we've talked about him at length. Henry doesn't change any Roman Catholic doctrine when he begins the Reformation. He doesn't change any of it. Right. When they draft the first set of articles, it's all Roman Catholic from the celibacy of the clergy to transubstantiation on down the other, other, there's only a few, the several articles that they initially passed. In the first great litany that Cranmer writes, the beginning of the litany is a direct invocation of Mary and the saints. That's how, that's how Catholic, like conscientiously Catholic they were. They were very anti-Lutheran, anti-Luther. Okay? As the Reformation unfolds, and we've talked about this a good bit, but for the purposes of our discussion today, Edward VI, Henry's son, takes the church to 
much further Protestant leanings than his father ever would have thought appropriate, and apparently much further than either of his, of his sisters thought was appropriate. So when Mary comes to the throne after him, she takes it all the way back to Roman Catholicism. She reigns for five years. When she dies, Elizabeth, interestingly, just takes the church away from Rome and brings back some of Edward's um, rules and rubrics. Some of the, she brings back some Reformation things, but then holds the settlement together. It's the Elizabethan settlement. It holds it all together. And then you get a whole bunch of other stuff in the 1600s. All of this to say, in 1560, the Pope, I forget which, which Pope it was at, at the moment, but the Pope in 1560 told Elizabeth, if you will acknowledge me as the head of the church, then I will acknowledge the prayer book that you have as a valid prayer book. So the Vatican, the Roman church acknowledged there was nothing theologically uh, that was an error in our prayer book, and that's not the 1549. That's the 1552. That's the one that gets typically called more Protestant. So here's the papacy saying, no, that's a good prayer book. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. You keep using that if you acknowledge me as the head of the church. Because that's what had happened. Henry said, the Pope isn't the head of the church in England. I am. His son retained that title. Mary, got rid of, uh, Mary retained all of the rights and the privileges that her father right. secured. Um, but she, she submitted to the Pope. Elizabeth had, the, had it changed. She's not the head of the church in England, but she's its governor, meaning she's its protector. And she was very involved in um, the disputes in the church. And you see this all the way through with so many English monarchs. James, that's where we get the King James Bible, Charles I, II, etc. It's not until you get to the late 1800s, 1800s-ish, that the monarchy really isn't involved as much as they were. So much so that a new prayer book is, is presented to Parliament in 1928, the 1928 prayer book. And Parliament won't support it. Not because they have theological problems with it, some people did, but they won't support it because they basically said it was none of their business. So when you hear people say that the 1928 prayer book's not authorized, well, it's not authorized because by that point you have people in the English Parliament who aren't Anglicans anymore. Right. And then you figure that's almost 100 years ago at this point. Okay, so why aren't you Roman Catholic? Daryl, that's a lot of great history. That's really good. Thank you for telling us that. But you didn't actually answer the question. We're not Roman Catholic. Because being Roman Catholic would be like me living in West Virginia and someone saying, why aren't you a Texan? Right. I don't live in Texas. I live in West Virginia. Now, if I have a, um, uh, like a dual national citizenship, right, where you've got, you're, you're American or you're Australian, well, now we're, talk we're not talking apples to apples anymore. That's a different nation, not a different state or a different jurisdiction in this amongst the states right right so as anglicans we read the bible and we understand that the church of corinth is not the church of rome the church of ephesus is not the church of the thessalonians jerusalem isn't athens someone says why aren't you roman catholic the answer is i'm already catholic i just i'm not part of that roman jurisdiction and in every jurisdiction, like in every state, there are particular freedoms and liberties and responsibilities in those states because you live there. And what, what 
uh, and I'm being a bit anachronistic, I know that, but if you go back into the city-state model that the apostles went into when they preached the gospel, Paul doesn't even deal with the same problems in the particular churches because the cities and the city-states are different. I'm not a Roman. I'm not, I'm not uh, or, or you, could, you could even turn it, go back a little bit further in, in the language. I'm not Italian. My ancestry is not Italian. I did ancestry. All my ancestry is <laughs> from the UK, except for some native folks here in the United States. And they surely weren't Italian. Right. So why aren't you a Roman Catholic? So because the, the rebuff will come around. Well, it's, it's about truth claim. That the Roman Catholic Church is more true than the Anglican Church. Well, I think that's up for debate. And our Roman Catholic friends would say, No, it's not. It's, it's not up for debate. They would say it's not up for Was debate. Is that an accent? Yeah. <laughs> no, nice try, buddy. <laughs> um, so that, that is the, but that, I think that's the first way I want to answer that question. Why aren't you a Roman Catholic? Because I'm not anti-Roman. I'm not anti-Roman Catholic. I don't think anybody here, all of us that gather around this table regularly to, to do these podcasts, we're not anti-Roman Catholic. Not anymore. Well, no, not anymore. Right. Some of our friends are, yeah. but we're not. We're, we're very pro-Catholic. Yes. We're just not Roman. Because to be Catholic is to, in, in the contemporary setting uh, sense, to be Catholic is to be consciously Christian and not part of a Christian body or a, um, or as uh, Vatican II used this language, and it's, it's, it's a good language, to be part of an ecclesial body, something that doesn't constitute the visible organized unity of the church, but you don't want to say isn't part of the body of Christ somehow. And it has to stay, it has to stay with that definition of somehow because you're making a statement about so much variety that one, you don't want to exclude from, from you know, the grace of God of being saved, but by the same token, neither can you say it is the church because there, there are portions of it, and depending on what it is, the portion is different, there are portions of it that are right. It's an important deal. So if they've come, if that ecclesial body, they practice baptism and they celebrate communion, but they don't believe in the sacraments, are they not part of the body of Christ? Well, according to, to Anglican doctrine, yeah, they're part of the body of Christ. They're baptized, but there's a deficiency that's got to get fixed, right? Um, and we could go on down the line with whatever the topic is and say, when you, when you're, when you are Catholic, not Roman, but when you are Catholic, you are consciously part of the visible church as that visible church has been historically defined, which means our Lambeth quadrilateral is a, pre, is a pristine example of looking for what, mark, what, what signs need to be present for you to consciously understand yourself as Catholic, right. right? There's more to it, but that's where you can start. That's where you can start. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. You gave the um, the analogy of like different states. Like, why aren't you Texan? Yeah, I, I have people all the time that, especially, have listened into the podcast, and they're like, "Rome just did this or this scandal in Rome." I'm like, "Okay, like that. That's unfortunate. What do you, what do you, what do you want me to say? Like, look, other than look at this scandal in this this body or this body or this body." Yeah, you know, or it'd be like the, right. the same thing as like I don't know, like during COVID when like what was it in Portland where they like had an entire nation carved out? Yeah, um, like this whole city state in the middle of Portland. 
would be like somebody from Europe being like, hey, Adam, what's up with those people? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not from there. Right. Like, that's not, yeah. that's not me. Well, and how many people use the errors of one group to say, I can't join them because of their sins? And they're often ignorant to the sins in their own communities. Right. Right? I mean, I, I, a lot of people condemned the, um, the Pachamama at the Vatican, and rightly so, that needed to be condemned. And that good old boy who uh, grabbed the Pachamama and threw it into the Tiber River, hats off to you, my brother. Uh, appreciate what you did. Uh, and Mitch Pacwa, our, our good friend on EWTN, he, he called it out on, on, on the air about the errors of the Pachamama, that, that is not a representation of the Blessed Mother, that is an idol. But people will point to that and say, well, that's, I can't be Roman Catholic because of the Pachamama. Well, well, my first question is, well, what denomination or, or ecclesial body are you a part of? Or if you're an Anglican or uh, Eastern Orthodox, well, tell me which jurisdiction you're in. Because the probability that there's something there that could be identified as an error is true. Let me give you another example. The, the, um, abuse, the clergy abuse scandal amongst Roman Catholic priests. Right? That was a big, big, horrific headlines. The statistics, from what I've seen a couple years, uh, probably two years ago, statistical numbers of abusers are higher amongst Southern Baptist clergy than Roman Catholic clergy. The difference is the Southern Baptists are organized congregationally. So it's much more difficult to get numbers of what's happened, and it's much easier to hide because they don't share their information congregation to congregation on a denominational level or a, an affiliation level, if, if that's a language better suited for the SBC. Whereas in Rome, you can see that. And it's essentially the same handful of people under the same handful of leaders who are perpetrating it while they're just rubbing elbows with everybody pretending like they're okay. It's not excusable in any, any situation. Or in, in either case, it's, it's not excusable. But to say, I can't be Roman Catholic because of that, well, if you're a Baptist and you're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, you got the same problem. It's just hidden, or it's cloaked a different way. That, that takes us into like the truth claim. And I think this is where most people want to know, because if you're not part of Catholic Christianity, you just assume Catholic means Roman. And it doesn't, which is why I asked you about the East. Right. Because they are Catholics. The Orthodox is the Catholic body. Right. It, it, they are Catholic Christians. We call them Eastern Orthodox as a matter of uh, distinction because of the way their histories have developed in their particular nations. But they're not Roman, even though they're still very Catholic. So I, obviously when people ask us why we're not Roman Catholic, it's more than just, oh, because we, we're not there. We're not. Blah, 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 blah. Just like we explained. So how would you feel, like, what would you say about someone that says, okay, well, I only have XYZ church in my town. You know what I mean? Like, how do we look at it that way? Because there are places that have one church, you know, it's, but obviously in the United States, it's easy to find, you know, within an hour, 25,000 different churches. You know? Yeah. Well, that, that, that is how the question, that is one of, like, that's the sub question that right. often comes in with this question. Right. Uh, in my town, there is no Anglican church. Um, there's the Roman Catholic and they'll list off a few other denominations depending on where it is. I'll answer from my perspective. And so instead of like, a, and then people can hear how I would do whatever you want to with this, but there's my approach. 
let's say I wasn't a priest. Because being a priest, you know, you have a little bit more leeway in, in how you're going to uh, make some decisions, but then you're also under the authority of your bishop. So you, you, right. you, there's, a, there's a different yeah. dynamic there. But if I wasn't a priest and I was living in a town and there was not an Orthodox conservative Anglican church, and I say that because there are Anglican churches <laughs> that I would not attend. Right. I mean, there, there, are, there are Anglican jurisdictions that I would, I would not, right? Um, and most of that's parish-specific. And there are certain things. So, for example, if, if there's a woman clergy person, so like if, it's a, if there's a woman priest on staff, forget being the rector, if, if that local uh, church has women in, as priests, I'm not going. If that local uh, Anglican church has a, a male priest or male rector, but a female bishop, I'm not going because I don't think the sacraments there are valid. Uh, and it's not just that I don't think. The scripture and the tradition are pretty universal about that. So those, that's one example. Now, people want to jump into other stuff that's like hot-button issues today. You know, listen, if they're flying de calores outside and they don't mean it's about Noah, that's already a write-off for me. I'm not, I'm not going, okay? But the issues in our Anglican communion and in Rome and all the other churches for that matter right now are not, that's the presenting issue, but the problem is does the failure to submit to biblical authority, right? So look, and, and this takes time, it takes effort. Go look at the other churches that are in town. So for example, let's say it's a Roman Catholic church that's flying that flag because there are some of them. I'm not going to go there either. Not going to go there. If you say, well, in my, in my town, all the churches are doing that. I guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, because then what am I going to guarantee? But I can say the statistical probability that there's not a single church that isn't, right? There's got to be somebody somewhere. You just haven't found them. That, that's the first thing. Um, all of that, those caveats thrown out there, I would probably find an Eastern Orthodox or a Roman Catholic church first to attend. That's where I would go. And I recognize that amongst both of those types of church, churches, neither one of them would commune me. Right. Since I'm not confirmed in their churches, I can't receive the Eucharist there. Closed table. It's a closed table. And we were like that too. The Anglican church was like that. And it was the Angl Anglican community who really started pressing for more ecumenical ties amongst mainline Protestants which was achieved pretty easily as compared to the Roman Catholic, which still hasn't happened because the Anglican communion changed its practice of ordination. That was a big reason why all of that started to break apart uh, 50 years ago. But I would go there knowing that I can't receive the sacrament materially. I can't receive the visible substance, but I would go and I would hear the word and I would, I would, you know, probably go to Eucharistic adoration. I would go to other avenues, um, assuming that my stay in that town is temporary. Okay, right. like if I know I'm only going to be there for six months or a year because of my work and I'm going to move, I'm not going to change my jurisdiction altogether. But I'll attend there and just kind of join the the community as much as I can. Right. If I know that I'm living in that town. Like that's where I, my, like my company has moved me or I found a house I just can't afford not to, to escape. You know, I've got to buy it. Um, then I think, this is me, I would probably end up joining one of the two communions. 
because it's I have moved from one state to the other. Right. And so when I move to that other state, truly, I become a citizen of that state. Let me give an example, contemporary example. Most people, if they go out of state to go to college, do not change their driver's license the four years they, they, are, they are residents in another state. They don't vote there and they don't get their license changed. They keep all of that with their home state because they know they're leaving the place they're at for four years. So I think you've got to have that kind of capacity to go from one place to the next. Now, if I have people coming from an Ang- uh, a Roman Catholic church who start to attend our congregation and they, they say, you know, I, I've been to the Roman Catholic churches in the area and I've got this kind of challenge or this kind of problem with it. Well, I'm happy to have them integrate into our community if they're going to into our local church, especially if they're going to be here for a while, end up moving away. But I'm not comfortable doing that unless I've talked to their priest. Because in Roman Catholic doctrine, there are Roman Catholic bishops who would say, no, don't go to the Anglican church, except for the Pope. The Pope was cool with it. Uh, And that's not a joke. Pope Francis was sending Roman Catholics to the Anglican altars for the Eucharist when he was the cardinal in Argentina. So he was sending his people to, to Anglican churches for the Eucharist. So for the Roman Catholics who say, well, we can't go and receive the Eucharist in an Anglican church, according to the Pope, you can. I mean, according to his practice, you can, right? And I'll leave that for the Roman lawyers to, to, to debate amongst themselves. I'm not, I don't have a dog in that fight, other than to say, if you are baptized and you're following Jesus, it used to be, we used to say, if you're baptized and confirmed, but that's not been a rule amongst the Anglican communion as a whole for a long time. If you're baptized, ideally confirmed, but if you're baptized and following Jesus, you're welcome to come forward to receive him in the Eucharist. Are there theological differences? Yes, but those differences, by and large, especially since Vatican II, are not the kind of differences that cut either one out of the kingdom, as far as I'm concerned. And I realize there are some very ultra-reformed Anglicans who would take issue with that with me. And there are some Latin trad Roman Catholics who would probably take issue with that with me. Um, okay. It's not really new for me. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, you know, um, I'm not trying to, to, to persuade somebody to quit what they're doing. But to say that, right. to answer your question, if I was in a town and there wasn't a good Anglican church, the first place I'm going to look is somewhere Catholic. Catholic, not just in their doctrine, but Catholic in the form, Catholic right. in the order, Catholic in, in the sacrament. I'm not going to go to a church that has communion once every quarter. doesn't mean I won't visit for a service that I don't, or that I'm, I think those people are excluded from the kingdom, but that's not a practice I necessarily want to be a part of. That is the body and blood of Jesus. Show me a church, if I, especially if I'm out of town, if the church is having Eucharist every day, I want to be there every day they're having it. That's what they did in the book of Acts. So they did in Acts 2. Daily, they're breaking bread. So that's kind of how I look at it. Let, and now let's say that the Roman Catholic churches aren't good, and there's no Eastern Orthodox church, because it's hard to find some of those. Yeah. And there's no Anglican church. What do you do next? Well, I think then you, you've got a lot of options. You've got a lot of options. So the first thing you want to look for is the preaching biblical. Are they preaching scripture? The second thing you want to look for is, is the congregation healthy? Is it a healthy place? Are, are, are the people kind? Are the people welcoming? Are the people obeying scripture is kiss, uh, you know, consistently, are they being consistent in their, in their discipleship? 
And is it the kind of place where you, you have the peace, you have, you have a peace from God, you know, because the music may be bad and the preaching may be bad and, and uh, the carpet may be ugly, but all of that kind of stuff can kind of fall. When I say the preaching being bad, I mean boring. Uh, you know, you, 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 can, you can find good churches that are going to preach the scripture wherever you go, even if it's not necessarily what you're looking for. And I would recommend that as, in my case, that's where I, like, I would go, if it was a church that was a non-denominational church, you know, a, a cookie cutter kind of thing with stage lights and fog machines, that's probably, probably the last place I would go. I might go there for the first, if I'm out of town, you know, the first three or four weeks I'm in town, just so I can kind of walk in, look around, and I, because and those churches tend to be some of the bigger ones in the area, I can kind of get a feeling for the population, right. you know. Um, and that's assuming I don't have a connection somewhere else. When we went out to seminary back in 2014, I contacted the bishop, my bishop. I said, any churches you'd recommend out here? And he recommended two that he used to be the bishop of. We went to one, planning to go to the other one the next week. But we went to the first one, and then the, the rector reached out to us in like three days. Hey, why don't you guys come by the office for a visit? And so we, we just ended up staying there. Right. Which was great. We love it. St. Andrews in, in Versailles. I'd recommend it to anybody. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. I, I haven't been there since 2016, but uh, Dave Brennan was the rector when we were there. Dave, Dave's an excellent guy. One of the, uh, just a stand-up, stand-up man. Stand-up man. That's, that's me. And there are Anglicans who would say, no, I can't go to Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Church. I can. And when I say I can, that's not like a, I can. That's a, when you, when you grab a hold of and you are, you are embraced, you're enfolded into the Catholic life of the church. Man, I like a steakhouse in Texas as much as I like one in West Virginia. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So I realize that's a, a you know, simple illustration, but. I mean, I think given those options, I would really struggle with an Eastern Orthodox setting just because it feels foreign. Yeah, the liturgy is very different. And like, long. Well, I mean, I could deal, I could <laughs> deal with that. I mean, it is long. Uh, it is like <laughs> well, right. they're, they're often very insular. They're very like our community, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so unless you're ethnically part of one of those churches, and this isn't all, all the case, I'm not trying to, please don't think I'm belittling them. I'm just trying to describe them. I mean, uh, they're very insular. Well, and like when I say uh, even, there's a lot of things that are just that aren't Western, right? And right. that is versus with Rome, you do have that connection, like how you um, process information. Yeah, yeah, the like thought that, structures. The, right. Like that is that's pretty that's important. Like even how you're going to do those things, it would be. I think it would be very challenging going to an Eastern. Orthodox Church. Well, I mean, I've 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 been in in uh, Roman Catholic Mass before, and it's it's pretty similar. It's not all the same, obviously, but right. it's it's pretty similar. But I was just in, well, like I said, I was just in Greece, and um, it, when I was in Greece, I saw a whole lot more clergy walking around. I didn't see any clergy in, in Turkey, but I saw a lot of clergy walk around in Greece. And I I walked by a service um, when I was I was <laughs> going to go wash laundry, but you know they were <laughs> so, so they were in there um, on a Sunday, and it. And it's just, um, I don't know what my point of saying that was. Oh, but the, the, the liturgy is different, obviously. And it's something, like you said, that we're not used to. But it's still, I mean, they're still wonderful Christians and everything. Of yeah, and that's not, that's not me knocking them. And I'm right. saying that's why me, as part of this, why are you? Right. And that you being a personal, right. you know. Yeah, I'd now. go to a Roman church first. I tell you something for our listeners to consider if they don't, if, because especially depending on where you are in the country, you can't find an Anglican church and you're not sure about the Roman 
there is this whole other classification of, of Anglican Roman church that's been going around now for a little over 10 years, and it's called Ordinariate, mm-hmm. an Ordinariate church. And what is that? So Benedict the Sixteenth, when he was watching the increasing collapse of the Anglican, uh, especially in England and America, standard of orthodoxy under uh, then Archbishop Rowan Williams, uh, Benedict created the ordinariate, the personal ordinariate of the chair of Saint Peter. How do you like that? Meaning, the Pope would receive Anglican uh, clergy who wanted to hold to the traditions of the Anglican Church, but as Roman Catholics. Because Roman, Ca- Roman Catholicism is not monolithic. The, the unification point for Roman Catholicism is submission to the Pope, not, as the prime, not, as pri- not his primacy, but his supremacy. Vatican II is clear to, to talk about papal supremacy. As an Anglican, I'm content, I'm, I think it's great papal primacy, the first amongst the equals. But supremacy is a different definition. Well, uh, the ordinariate was begun, and so you had a number of clergy in England and clergy in the United States who joined in in the U.S., joined the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. So if you have one of those in town and you don't have a good, you know, Orthodox Anglican community, go to that one. Now, Here's what here's what'll happen. You'll go in and you'll see a traditional Anglican liturgy. But the clergy, while they're still uh Anglicanized, have formal those churches have formally joined the Roman Catholic Church. In the ACNA, we are, you know, going back and forth, you know, trying to chart the different the guys that go to the ordinariate aren't aren't contending with non-Catholic influences in the same way that you have in those bodies like ours who are trying to pull off some kind of contemporary Elizabethan settlement. And that's always, always has a measure of uneasiness to it because the edges can get, can get pretty unstable. But the center is very stable. The center is very healthy. And that center is that Catholic root, that Catholic vein that, that we're emphasizing here. Um, so I, I mean, that's that, that's another option for people, you know. I don't I don't know too many of the guys that are in that. Well, actually, we have a um, Bishop Zampino who was retired and attends our congregation, ordained a man when they were in the Charismatic Episcopal Church. That man uh, brought his congregation into our. I think he brought it into our diocese, his church down in Baltimore. I don't know, maybe a year or two. It wasn't long, but then joined the ordinariate. His name's Ed Meeks. And, and if you jump on YouTube, Ed's got uh, sermons that are hitting 25,000 people a week, and there aren't that many people in his church. Ed's just, he's a good, pre- like he's a truth preacher. He preaches the truth. If you know Bishop Zampino, you, it's kind of obvious. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Ed's preaching the truth in his Catholic ordinary at church that, I, I mean, if you're in Baltimore, go check him out, you know. But the uh, point being, you know, you've got, and there's other Anglicans in Baltimore. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying if you if you live by that one, live by that church and want to see an example, there's an example. Um, but I think you know, jurisdictionally, these are the kinds of things that you're looking at. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You you brought up um, a few moments ago, uh, supremacy versus primacy. Yes, and the supremacy is where my personal issue lies and it's different than where it has in the past for me so 
I'm not going to lie to you. I'm about as American as they come, you know. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprise, surprise <laughs> there. Um, and so the idea of supremacy, I, just as an American, that's how it, it used to. But becoming an Anglican, that became less of an issue because really chewing on what does submission look like within the church. So that, that does change your perspective. Um, I think now it, it's historic. Like, I just don't, I don't see it. Yeah, I, Francis just is in, definitely not doing that. In, right. Like, within conciliarism. Like, and that's big picture, because as much as they might be like, oh, well, you, you don't really have to, uh, it, you do. Like, it, it, it's there, because, I mean, that's a, an argument you hear a lot. Is, oh, well, it's not really. It is, but it's not. Like, it's there potentially to be invoked, but it's not used. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I don't know. It's literally in your name and your uniting factor. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with, with what you're saying that it's not as big of a deal or it's not as much of a reality as we're making it out to be. Yeah. I mean, according for Vatican, so Vat, for Vatican one is the, is the council that decreed um, papal infallibility. Now it had long been believed. You can see it in Cajetan's, Responses to Luther and Bellarmine to Andrews and to um, William Laud. I mean, you can see this stuff then, right? So they already believed in papal supremacy, and the Pope is the he, like the office of the Pope, is the vicar of Christ in a very immediate and direct way. Now, the East North, the East has taught all of the bishops, the episcopacy itself is the succession of Peter and the other 11 apostles. And as Anglicans, that's what we believe. We, we believe that side of it, that the bishop does sit in his chair, his cathedra, his cathedral. He does represent uh, the apostles, and he is in fellowship with other bishops. He's, he's, in, he's in accountability with them, and the archbishop is the primus inter paris. The archbishop is the first amongst equals. He is the primate, as we say. If we're talking about the Bishop of Rome as the primate, as the, the primate bishop amongst global bishops, most Anglicans don't have a problem with that. It's the pre- pre- supremacy. And it's in Vatican I. They say, whatever he says from his chair is, is ex cathedra infallible. And they don't mean infallibility in the way many evangelicals do. When we, when we talk about infallibility, we typically mean that there's something, like we make it a synonym for insp- inspired, meaning that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's not what infallibility means. They, they, when they talk about the infallibility of ex-cathedral statements, they believe it's a, um, how can we say, like a negative grace, meaning the grace that is, is come upon the Pope in those statements preserves him, keeps him from making a statement that's erroneous. It's an errant, meaning there won't be any errors in it. Right. That's why it's infallible. And he's summer. And so when you get the, and, and what happens is Vatican two, Vatican one doesn't get to finish. They never formally close the council, but there's a war that breaks out. So they, they all kind of disband Vatican two. When John the 23rd con- convenes Vatican two, he, before he opens Vatican two, he concludes Vatican one. So you go from the late 1800s here to the early 1960s, okay? 
when they can when they open Vatican II, they come now, they come back, and what to, looks like to those of us outside of the Anglican, outside of the Roman world, they contradict, but they don't. I mean, give them the benefit of the doubt. What they're doing is they are completing what they started. The Pope, in, in Roman doctrine, is the vicar of Christ, and he reigns over the church as a monarch, monarch monarchical episcopacy, in conjunction with the other global bishops. Now that, that's a much closer picture to, to, to older practice in the church, but they still retain supremacy instead of primacy. Okay? And then they circumscribe what it takes for him to make an infallible statement. He's got to say he's going to do it. And if there's any error in it, it's wrong. Well, hold on. Uh, you, can you see the catch-22 there? Right. right. If he can't say anything wrong, if he does say something wrong, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. So you build a back door to the clause. So it's borderline circular in reasoning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how it looks to people outside of the Roman Catholic Church. And as in the Anglican world, it seems unnecessary. It's unnecessary because the, the authorities, and we see this in the theology of Richard, uh, Richard Hooker, if the church authorities say you do something, you do it. They don't have to be infallible to be authoritative. Right. That, that's not how it works. The authority is the authority because authority comes from God. And authority intrinsically exists for the good. Paul does, talks about that in 1 Timothy 1. So it doesn't matter. Like you, there's no need to codify that to retain and uphold the, the dignity and the office of the church. Um, and then when the Pope makes infallible statements, he has the capacity to raise things up to, the, to, uh, to matters of day fide, matters that of, are not of the faith to be of the faith. And so you get just a handful, a very, very small number of, uh, day of infallible statements from the Pope, and they're all pretty much about the Blessed Virgin principally that she did not physically die and was bodily assumed into heaven. Like she got raptured before the rest of the, of the church. If you're a Baptist or a Pentecostal with that kind of rapture theology, she got raptured first. She got Enoch and Elijah experience without death, or she got Moses's experience without death. She's already been raised up and seated in heaven. Well, as far as the Eastern church is concerned, she died, but she was, uh, you know, resurrected and raised into heaven. Why would you make something a matter of day for day that we've already been confessing and believing for millennia? And for the majority of the Anglican world, unless you're some kind, uh, like a super reformed person who says, because it's not in the scripture, I don't believe it. Most Anglicans, we believe it. It's August 15th is her feast day. Uh, you know, and we talk about how God has taken her to himself. And we're not talking about her spirit going to heaven. We're talking about her body being raped. So, and then you go back to the older calendars we have in our prayer books, and there's more feast days that she has. Point being, you don't need to make a day for day. And so C.S. Lewis, when he was asked why he wasn't a Roman Catholic, Lewis, Lewis's response was something to this effect. It's not because of what your church has said. It's because of what your church might say. And I don't know what your church is going to say that I'll be bound to believe. That's why I can't do it. Which is significant because all the all the Roman Catholic stores sell C.S. Lewis's stuff as if he was a Roman Catholic, right. but he wasn't. He he was a Catholic, right. and that's where we are. We're Catholics. We're Catholics. We're not Roman, and I appreciate everybody who wants to make us Roman because that means they believe in their Roman Catholic state, their Roman Catholic jurisdiction. That's off to you. If the Lord at some point in the future tells us that the best place for us to be Catholics is Roman, well, that's what we do because we want to obey the Lord 
and live out into the fullness of Christian faith as much as we can. But right now, if any Romans decide to move to, uh, to West Virginia, you get what I'm saying, any Texans want to come to West Virginia, anybody wants to move to being Anglican, obey the Lord. Right. And we're not pillaging people out of other, other bodies. That's not what we do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even we, we, we came from uh, our staff meeting before this. And, you know, one of the things that we said was we're, we're not trying to present ourselves as anything that we're not. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that when people are looking at churches, we say, give it six weeks because that gives you a good feel. For example, if somebody comes in the middle of like Lent, they're going to be like, right. man, these guys are downers. <laughs> That's right. Get through Lent, <laughs> man. Like they're for, you know, their first service, they're smearing ashes on people. Right. Like, man, tell them that they're going to die, die and turn to dirt. <laughs> um, you know, that's part, you know, not trying to present ourselves as anything we're not. And I think that's, that's how it should be with everyone is don't try to present yourself as something that you're not. When I confess the creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I don't cross my fingers. We're Catholics. Just not Roman. Well, I hope we um, satisfy the curiosity of people asking the question. It might not have been, you know, that's definitive because there's a lot of nuance here. You know, well, that's the, the tough part, right? Because we're not anti-Roman. Yeah, it's like, it's like they want us like, uh, can you please, but it's almost like the, um, the presupposition is uh, they're going to give a good condemnation of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, no, that's, it's the, not. No, no. I mean, we we are Protestant only in as much as we protest certain teachings of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, but not in a way that we're anti-Roman. Um, I mean, like Lancelot Andrews says that we believe, and he's right, we believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ as much as the Roman Catholic Church does. Right. It, it is truly the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. We just don't know how. And that's what trans, that's about transubstantiation. We don't know if that's how the Lord did it. He could, but we don't know. I mean, you know, so it, it's a, we're, we're not anti-Roman. Um, and, and having said that, are there practices and things going on in the Anglican communion that are reprehensible? Yes. I mean, hello, Google, look, right. look, look up what's going on. I mean, there are things that are absolutely atrocious. So, Yeah, there's just too much nuance here. I think somebody would have to get more specific with us. But I, I, we were getting enough of these that I, it th- I thought it merited this kind of discussion. That we're not anti-Roman. We're just not Roman in the same way that I'm not a Texan. I'm a West Virginian in one United States. And yet we still come and we call it brother. You know, we, we have no issue with that. We're one team, one fight. We're on the same team. We are indeed all one Catholic. Holy yeah. Catholic and apostolic. Um. So, like I said, I know we uh, probably didn't satisfy the, the question in its entirety. If you want more clarification or you want to put some bumpers on or some left and right parameters, uh, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook um, or email us at daryl at ascensionwv.org. And uh, Daryl is spelled D-A-R-R-Y-L. Once again, I'm Adam. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl.